This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The most important contract for the Seahawks to get done this offseason is the one they're actually closest to getting done. I, I know we've talked a lot about Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown as if the, the two contract extensions are partnered together, but in my mind, they're very different, and the most important one is the one that Seattle seems closest to signing. The most important deal here is the one for Jamal Adams, in my mind, and it's not particularly close. I don't disagree that it's the most important deal to get done, but it's also the deal that could involve the most regret after the fact, because we're talking about a contract for a safety that even though we like the way that he plays, Danny is a guy that doesn't exactly provide as much when it comes to pass coverage as one would like out of a safety, out of a Minka Fitzpatrick type or some of the other top safeties across the league. It's Danny and Gallant. It's Thursday, August 12th. We've got interviews for you today with Jerry DePoto, Mariners General Manager. That's 830. We're going to be talking to Marquise Blair. Seahawks safety and Nickelback. That's at 745. And then at 930, we're going to talk to the guy who keyed the game-winning situation for the Mariners last night. Jared Kelnick and his ninth-inning double set the table for what was a walk-off victory. We'll talk to him at 930. But the most important thing for the Seahawks right now is the two stars that they have, neither of whom are practicing, both of whom are said to be seeking contract extensions. And there's an update in today's Seattle Times about just how far apart Jamal Adams and the Seattle Seahawks are. Now, the good news is they're really close. Like they're they're really cl- I'm not sure how they bridge that final gap and everything is dressed up in the they've got a they, there's an impasse and Jamal's not going to play for the deal that's on the table and the Seahawks aren't going to improve the deal that they they offered that they've made. We'll put all that to the side for a second because we'll see how that resolves itself. I think that's really good news because it is the most important and I think this is the contract that is the safest in regard that there's the least amount of room for regret. Wait, why why is that? Why is that, though, that there's no room for regret? I mean, you got a guy in Bobby Wagner whose contract is already a lot on your books defensively, and Jamal Adams is going to be just as much. Are those two making enough of a difference to give your defense the ability to advance past the first round of the playoffs for the first time in a while against a team that, you know, has something better than Josh McCown under center? There is. Those are two of the very best players at their respective positions. Even if you don't think Bobby Wagner is the middle line, the best middle linebacker, he's one of the he's one of the three. Definitely one of them, yes. And Jamal Adams is the best safety. You never go wrong with having those guys on your team. You never go wrong with having those guys signed. The problems are when you pay a good player great money, or when you pay someone who's no longer capable of even playing at a good level, or stops playing altogether. That's where you end up regretting it. So I I don't see the downside. Jamal Adams, what he's turning twenty five. Yeah. He's so young. He has so much football left in front of him. I don't I don't see the I don't see the downside to this sort of deal. But to go back to what you said a little bit ago, is he the best? Yeah. Who's yeah. better? Who's better? I don't know that you can definitively say that he's, he's better the best. than Mika Who's Fitzpatrick. Better? Teron, Teron Matthew? Uh, Fitzpatrick? Matthew makes yeah, he more plays. Fitz, Fitzpatrick does not hit like Jamal Adams does. Buda Baker is somebody that's also... Buda Baker's a great player. Love Buda Baker. In the same conversation, I don't think it's a clear-cut argument that Adams is the number one. I like Adams' play a lot. 
I think his style is very unique, and I think that that's something that a lot of people have a difficult time with, that safety to safety, there is such a very variance in terms of skill sets, not yeah. just between free and strong safeties, but also just between specific free safeties and between specific strong safeties. That's fair. Maybe maybe you you like a different flavor instead of instead of Jamal. Maybe you like someone who who does cover more ground in the second. B- Buda Baker is someone who's more of your center fielder. Same with Minka Fitzpatrick. Whereas Jamal Adams, I don't think you go wrong with having one of the best players at his position. I, I just I don't I don't think I don't think that there's a there's a downside in where you end up saying okay he was worth. He, he was worth $15 million a year instead of 17 That's not the kind of deal that you truly end up regretting, though. I don't think it's going wrong as much as we, we were talking about flavor. Is it possible to be putting too much into one specific type of flavor in your defense? And in both Jamal Adams what do you mean? and Bobby Wagner, you have two guys who are essentially, let's say, they're part of the same part of the defense in that they're basically going to be in the middle of the defense, all over the field, sideline to sideline. They're they're playing in the box as opposed to they're they're at their best when they're playing in the box and up near the right. line of scrimmage, as opposed to being in the backfield. Yeah, I could see that. Not defensive linemen, not cornerbacks, and not a center fielder like Earl Thomas, who you used to have. Though Quandre Diggs is definitely a capable player back there. I I, I see your point. I don't think we fully know how Jamal Adams is going to fit because we haven't seen him healthy for a year, right? Like, he didn't have any interceptions last year, and some of that was bad luck, but some of it was because he was jacked up, right? He's playing with a broken finger, and at the end, he can't reach his arm up because of his shoulder. He played in 12 games, so I I think Jamal is going to be better in pass coverage than he was a year ago, than what we saw from him in 2020, but that's... That's a that's a fair point that you might be putting too much money in guys that are playing at the line of scrimmage and especially in today's NFL. But I look over at Dwayne Brown. If if the if the downside to Jamal Adams is hey you're paying a lot of money for a guy who's best in the box and you've already got a guy that you're paying a lot of money to play in there, the downside for Dwayne Brown is that he either physically breaks down or he stops wanting to play right. Like the downside for Dwayne Brown is that you're getting a guy that's no longer capable of functioning at an NFL level, either because of the collective wear and tear or just because of the erosion of age. But you're not necessarily going to have him for the next five years. I think we know that. And I think with someone like Dwayne Brown, I look at it from this perspective. What's more of a sunk cost, paying Jaron Reed and Greg Olson what you paid last year? Or is it paying Dwayne Brown $10-plus million for this year and the next season? I mean, think about this. He, as far as pass block win rate goes, which is an advanced statistic that ESPN has to measure offensive line play, it's not the end-all, be-all by any means, but Dwayne Brown was second in pass block win rate among left tackles, and the only guy who was better than him, by the way, is Andrew Whitworth, who's 39 years old. Brown's going to turn 36 at the end of the month. I don't think that you would necessarily regret the Dwayne Brown contract in a way that you could end up regretting the Jamal Adams contract. Because it's not just that we're not as enthused about his impact on pass defense. It's also that he had a lot of injuries last year. And his style of play, where he is in the box and he's not exactly the biggest guy, maybe would lend itself to more injuries. Whether it's a hand injury or it's a groin injury or it's a torn shoulder labrum like he had at the end of last season. But the worst case scenario is he gets hurt and then he comes back. 
right? Like, Jamal Adams is not a bigger injury risk than Dwayne Brown. I don't know. Paul, come on. We're talking about two different ages. He's 36 years old. Yes, he's going to be 36 years old. But are we going to predict injury and availability based off of age entirely when Dwayne Brown is somebody who, despite said age, was back from a knee surgery in two weeks? Where with Jamal Adams, a groin injury kept him out a month? That's that's concerning. That the the way that knee surgery came up. No, man, I, I would say it, at the at the age that Dwayne Brown is, at the age that Dwayne Brown is, I want it to be year to year, and I I don't want to be adding years to a contract. I I really I I don't think you could. And with Jamal Adams, there's he's young, and I don't think that the the injury risk for him is any greater than it is for anyone else at his position I don't think that there's a higher concern whereas for Dwayne Brown and this is it sounds like I'm 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 criticizing him and I'm not I'm just recognizing the reality of the game I don't know if there's any position I would extend at the age of 36 that's not a kicker or a quarterback well if you're seeing Andrew Whitworth play at this level at age 39 I don't think that's a bad option to go with that left tackle and the other thing is too who are you going to have as your left tackle if there's no Dwayne Brown here? The alternative situation is not exactly as good as the one that the Seahawks would have. Are the Seahawks? Yeah, you're right. You're you're right. The Seahawks are probably better prepared to play without Adams at safety than they are to play without Brown at left tackle. Whether it's Ryan Neal who did decent when he or, came in, or Marquise Blair who we're going to talk to at seven forty five. Like that's Ooh, that might that be luck. his that that might be his his natural. You're probably better prepared for that. I still go back if they don't sign Jamal Adams. And that affects his availability in the regular season. Oh, it, it's not a disaster, but it's getting pretty close given everything that's been given up for him. The good news is I think I think they're close to getting a deal done. We'll have more to talk about this and also get you the latest details that were as they were outlined in Adam Jude's story in the Seattle Times. Here's front page news. This this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. Paul, the Mariners have asked if they could come out of timeout. They're out of timeout, but barely. They are barely out of timeout. That took a very, very long to take care of last night. That is the Texas Rangers. I will take the win. I will take the win. I will take them out of timeout. I'll stop. I'm being a negative Nancy. Do we give credit to Jared Kelnick, who's double, uh, who's who legged out a double? He ran his way to that. We'll be talking to him at 9.30 in today's interview of Palooza. Or is it Luis Torrens, who with one out drove the ball over the center fielder's head to score the game-winning run? Hmm. I don't want to give any credit to the offense with the way that the offense has been playing. <laughs> None? No, I'm giving all okay, the credit. Okay, we'll, we'll at least play Torrens' hit. We'll at least play okay. Luis Torrens' game-winning hit. And the 3-1 pitch to Terenz on the way. Swing and a fly ball deep to center field. This ball game is over. This one is off the top of the wall. Luis Terenz with a base hit to straightaway center. Here comes Kelnick on to score. And the Mariners win it 2-1. A walk-off single by Luis Terenz, who is getting mobbed out there at second base. And it was set up by Jared Kelnick, and we're going to talk to Jared Kelnick at 9.30 today. I look at the bullpen, Danny, because once again, the Mariners' offense made life very difficult on its pitching, and there was Tyler Anderson going five and a third, only allowing one run. And look, it's Texas. They don't have a very good lineup, but Joe Smith, Corey Sadler, our guy, Diego Castillo, Andrew Steckenrider, 
in almost four innings of relief do they allow just one hit? I mean, that's what you're hoping for from this bullpen that I thought was going to fall off a cliff without Kendall Graveman and chemistry. But here they are holding things down for an offense that, man, they got to they wake up. You can't keep scoring less than three runs, man. This is getting really frustrating. But they won, and they're out of timeout. The front page. Doesn't sound like I really appreciate that W, does it? Alden Smith was someone that was looking pretty good for the Seahawks in training camp. When I was out there, he looked like he was a guy who actually could figure onto the field early on during this season. But we found out yesterday morning that the Seahawks and he had parted ways. The Seahawks released him. It wasn't anything to do with what he was doing on the football field, Danny, per Brady Henderson and per Corbin Smith, who I talked with on my show yesterday morning. This was a matter of broken trust, which honestly isn't that surprising when it comes to Alden Smith, who has had a lot of bad decisions over the course of his NFL career. It's a bummer, man, because I read that and know that the issues that he's had with substance abuse and specifically with alcohol, I'm like, it's, I mean, that's it's pretty clearly that, that something happened with regard to that or, or some other sort of off-the-field decision that he made. That's a bummer. I don't think it's a criticism. I don't think it's an indictment of the decision Seattle made to give him a shot. I think those two things need to be keep kept in, in a separate... You can't ask a team to predict when or if a person w- who's had trouble will stay sober. I think the only thing that you can ask is to say, like, did you set up a framework t- to keep that person accountable for that? And how much did you risk? How much did you rely upon that person? And in this case, I think the Seahawks were very much, hey, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, we're going to be able to to shake hands and walk away because we've set up pretty gra- firm ground rules. I actually think that in in some ways this is this shows that it was it's a it's a decision and a risk that they took and decided when it wasn't going in the right direction, were able to to free themselves from it. I don't have any second... I don't second-guess their decision to add him. There's an empathetic side to this that you see with the, the Seahawks, and they were giving him all the support that they could. But when you've seen now over the last couple of years, both with Josh Gordon and Alden Smith, this not work out, is this yeah. a road that you want to keep going down? How yeah. about just going forward? You still want to go down this road. Because it, yeah. it, it did not work out with either of these two, and it didn't hurt you necessarily. Exactly. But maybe it there didn't... were alternative maybe there were alternative players that you could have brought in instead. Maybe, or maybe it would have been some other guy that wouldn't have made a difference. I don't. I don't. When people have problems, I don't think the answer is to say that that person never gets another opportunity. I, I think you have to go into it with your eyes wide open. I think you have to go into it with your your eyes wide open. And if you decide that's that person is employable, and to me. Someone who's had substance abuse issues, no matter how long they've had them for or how bad they've been, I think that's always a, 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 the kind of person. If that person has the ability to help you in in their job, and you're not banking everything or, or making some sort of hey, we have to have this person stay sober to work out. You say hey, if you stay sober, we got an opportunity for you here. But if you don't, you're gonna we're, we're gonna part ways. I, I don't think that's a bad way to operate. That is front page news. Let's get the professor in here. John Clayton joins us for the morning drive. 
John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny, Danny and Gallant. Professor, was this a mistake by Seattle given, given going with Alden Smith, given that there are options like Ryan Kerrigan, Justin Houston potentially available for them as alternatives this offseason? No, absolutely not, because he, he was a big bonus. I mean, what you're looking at, <clears throat> if you look at the uh, the roster right now, I mean, they've got six really good, if not more, uh, defensive ends. And if he would have worked out, I mean, with the 50-plus sacks that he's had in his career, they would have had a total of 198.5. And so it's like, what, what do you have to lose by signing him? Okay, you're not paying him anything. He's getting minimum salary. You know, you've got him, and if it doesn't work out, I mean, you have not much invested in him. And again, you know, Ryan Kerrigan was going to cost more. I mean, it cost uh, uh, over $2 million to get uh, Justin Houston, and it's like they didn't want to pay that, and they shouldn't have had to pay that. I mean, you know, you still have Alton Robinson, who's going to be, on, I think, a rising guy on that roster. You still have all the other defensive ends, and if he would have worked out, then been great for the rotation. And also, what you look at is once you get down to the final cut, you know, all all the guys going to be able to make it because somebody had to go. In this case, I don't know what he did, how he did it, however it was. It's like he did something that broke the trust. When you break the trust, you let him go and move on. Professor, there's a story in the Seattle Times today by Adam Jude that's outlining pretty specific numbers between the Seahawks and and Jamal Adams. I, I read it and I came away feeling like, man, if this is just about this, the sequencing of bonuses and $2 million in guaranteed money, these two sides are really close and I expect a deal to get done. How did you take I haven't that read, story? I haven't read the story yet because, uh, you know, 7.15 in the morning, I haven't had a chance to, to look at the, uh, the paper yet. I'll look at it after that. So it's basically more the bonuses than anything else. If that's going to be... The- yeah, the story was that it's a $70 million contract, and the Seahawks have offered to guarantee $38 million of it. Uh-huh. That, that uh, Jamal Adams' side responded with, we'd like $2 million in additional guarantees, and they'd like to move more of the bonuses into the first three years mm-hmm. of, of, of the four-year deal. So they're not that far apart. Then again, the phrasing was, hey, Jamal's not going to sign this deal, and the Seahawks aren't going to budge from their offer, so there's a little bit of a standoff going on. But I took it to mean that these two sides are pretty close. Oh, absolutely. I mean, $70 million over how many years? Four. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, this will get done. I mean, you know, because if you're talking about, uh, you know, a deal that is basically on guarantees, because, again, you make, you switch, you swap things. It's like, okay, if you can get the average, then you can get the uh, the other part of it. And then it's like you swap, uh, you know, the higher the average, the lower the guarantee. So, no, that, if that's going to be the case, good job, Adam Jude. If that's going to be what the numbers are, then this thing will get done. Kevin Connor is Jamal Adams' agent, and for what it's worth, John, last year, the contract he negotiated for Tredavious White, four years, $69 million. So it seems like mm-hmm. there's some similar framework there as well. And remember, that deal it took some time to get done, but it was done a week before the season opener for Buffalo. Yeah, I mean, this, 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 this thing has very little shelf life right now because if we're down to the guarantees, because, again, the big thing was going to be the average because one of the problems that I think a player has is that uh, the average becomes a ego-type thing. And yeah. if the ego-type thing uh, becomes too big, that's going to be a problem. 
But if they can have an agreement as far as the average, then it's a matter of working. Again, it's a matter of, okay, on the guarantee, how is it going to be structured so it doesn't impose on the cap and all those different things? So, no, I think that that's a great sign. Good job, Adam Jude. And, uh, you know, good job by both sides. Next, we'll get to Dwayne Brown, which there's less clarity about that. And I, I think going forward, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about mm-hmm. how w- even what he's looking for. W- what have you heard about Dwayne? No, I mean, we've heard nothing because, again, mm-hmm. it's like uh, nothing was going to happen with Dwayne until something happens with Jamal Adams. And again, what you're looking at, and I still go back uh, to history, and history basically is, you know, Andrew Whitworth. And so, like, for example, here's Andrew Whitworth, just like uh, Dwayne Brown. I mean, he was making $11 million. And so uh, on his next contract, he signed for like three years, $30 million. He's in pretty much the next to last year of that deal. And he's not going to get next year's uh, salary because he's going to retire because he's, what, 38, 39 years old. So basically what you're looking at for Dwayne Brown is not a matter of getting a deal. It's a matter of, okay, just getting something that's not going to be a raise. Because if you're making $10 million when you're 36 as an offensive tackle, because in fact, it was funny because I was talking to somebody last night. He brought up the whole idea. It's like, okay, if Dwayne Brown was on the open market, what would he get? And, for example— That's a great question. It's a great question, and the answer is going to be less than $10 million a year. Because, again, you look mm. at the fact that Eric Fisher, you know, mm-hmm. he was you know, coming off an Achilles tendon injury. He gets 8.3. Uh, you can see that uh, there's $9 million deals. And so it's like if he was on the open market, he's not going to get 10. Isn't it a little different, though, than with Eric Fisher? Because Brown, at least per pass block win rate, was number two in the whole NFL he's last 36. year. He's 36. Andrew Whitworth is number one. He's 39. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's a really good left tackle on the open market that some teams are going to put some money on the table not, to bring that guy not in. Not for 36, not, and particularly in a year like this where you have a uh, 8% discount in the cap and the cap's 182.5. It doesn't happen this year. But if you're Kansas City and you had the alternative, instead of going after or trading a first-round pick for Orlando Brown or signing someone like Dwayne Brown for $10-plus million, aren't mm-hmm. you doing the latter? For ten million, less than ten million, yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's age means everything this year in the NFL. Just look at the way the contracts have come in. Look at the releases that have been made. And again, on the open market, he would struggle to get ten million. But he's a left tackle, John. Come on. He, I mean, there's certain positions that are more important than other ones. Paul, what did I just say? He's thirty-six, right? <laughs> yeah, he's thirty-six. Okay, he's really Paul, good. Paul, what did I just say? <laughs> you said the same thing over and over again. You haven't provided a new point. Because I'm, I'm right. It's Danny and Gallant. Professor, we always appreciate it. We'll look forward to catching up with you a little bit and following your work on 710sports.com. Okay, thanks. That is John Clayton. Coming up next, Colin Cowherd thinks that Pete Carroll has a specific preference when it comes to these extensions. And it's a really strange reason why. We'll listen to that next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line down the left line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. Just continues. My, oh my. 
We're talking about a statue that got raised, not a statue that got torn down. Yesterday, Edgar Martinez finally got that honor outside of T-Mobile Park, Danny O'Neill. And whenever we get a chance to play the double, you got to take it. Absolutely, you do. He's on the Mount Rushmore of Mariner baseball. And in some ways, Edgar, while Ken Griffey Jr. will be the most famous and foremost Mariner, Edgar's the one that maybe embodies it the most. Someone who was kind of late in coming to the major leagues, honestly was kept and held down in the in the minor leagues for too long, in part because of Jim Presley, came up, played his entire career with the Mariners, made himself into the game's best designated hitter, has the iconic moment. It's it's almost fitting. Like the picture from that double that we all remember, at least that I remember, is Griffey on the bottom of the dog pile with this smile as he's looking straight up at the camera. Edgar's the one that hit the ball. Edgar's the one that had the game-winning hit. And the story is all of them together, but Edgar's, Edgar's part of the, the bedrock of Seattle sports. He's one you will not be able to tell the story of Seattle sports with without talking about Edgar Martinez. One hundred percent. And Edgar Martinez was asked about the unveiling of said statue yesterday, which is going to be right next to, as you mentioned, Ken Griffey Jr. I know it's really cool. You know, I think I heard that he said he, if I was still hidden behind him. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's really cool. You know, we played together what over ten years. And um, we grew as a player and men together, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's pretty cool. It does feel like we are getting further and further away from the era of one athlete playing for one town for the majority of their career. And it's cool to still see that players like that can still get that honor. I'm really happy for Edgar Martinez that he gets something like this, and I really do hope that we will see more athletes who have long tenures with their respective teams get this kind of recognition at least at some point down the road. It's really cool to have for Edgar. I don't begrudge people that that leave or think that, hey, an athlete is somehow failing by not staying with one team. Like I don't think that's a realistic sort of expectation the, given the, the amount of money and the way today's professional sports work. Because a lot of times it's not the athlete's choice, yeah. right? Like if we're being frank about it, Almost a lot of never. times it's not, it's, it's, it's not the athlete's choice. For guys who do make that a priority, though, there's something special that comes along with that. And I'm not going to say how that's worth giving up so-and-so million dollars or whatever it is. But he has a special bond here in Seattle. And, and that statue is testament to it. It's awesome that it's there. And we've touched on that with certain athletes. As you mentioned, I would wonder how Kevin Durant honestly would feel in retrospect if he were to have stuck with Oklahoma City all the way through and won a title there, would it mean more to him if he had stuck through instead of going to Golden State? Because I know he wanted to get that title, and I respect him for going to Golden State to get that title, especially because that way Oklahoma City didn't end up getting any NBA championship. But I wonder, because he's never going to get that kind of appreciation and then he's in Brooklyn now. No one in Brooklyn cares. You know, that is a New York Knicks town, Danny, as you very well know. I, I, would, I would like to point out that I still have a dream scenario for Kevin Durant where he can make it happen. I know what it is. That when the Seattle Supersonics return to the league, he goes and is on that team in its first year back. And then he will have began 
his career with the season with the Sonics and his career with it. And then all he has to do is say the Sonics were his favorite team he ever played for. Boom! Bing! Bang! Statue. There you go. Absolutely will put a statue up for him. If he rubbed some salt in the Oklahoma City wound and he said that if if this if this team had never left Seattle, I would have never left the Sonics. <laughs> so Danny's just going to supply him with lines to read. As he I will absolutely be his speechwriter. And what we will do is troll Oklahoma City together. And that will give all of us in Seattle not, it'll give us some solace because we're all small and petty. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd be on board with that. <laughs> Speaking of trolling, it's Danny and Galad, 710 ESPN Seattle. I don't know if Colin Cowherd's trolling or if Mark Rogers is giving him a speech to read, but we're hearing what sounds like some more friction between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson through Colin Cowherd. Here is what Colin Cowherd had to say about why the Jamal Adams trade actually took place. Pete desperately pushed for John Snyder, the GM, to make this deal because Russell was getting all the love, the offense, Russ is cooking, and the defense had no pass rush, so they gave up two firsts, a player, and a third for a safety. And I like Jamal Adams. He's a playmaker. I mean, he had like nine sacks last year, nine and a half. I like him a lot. But the left tackle on this football team is more valuable than Jamal Adams. That's a long way of getting to the actual point he was trying to make. <laughs> Come on. Wait, is this timeline right? Is this timeline right? Russ was getting all the praise and Russ was cooking. Did they trade for him in the middle of the season? No, no they traded for him before training camp opened. What's he talking about? How insecure is Mark Rogers about Russell Wilson's place? <laughs> That Paul's he gone straight, steals that. Paul's, Paul's gone straight to conspiracy theories. Well, He's it's like, not. Colin, is, Colin Cowherd is Mark Rogers' ventriloquist dummy. Where do you <laughs> think this is coming from? Yes, I am. Where do you think this is coming from? <laughs> Why is this coming now? I mean, just think about how stupid that is to operate that way. And we know Pete Carroll. Is it possible that there are some things that Russell Wilson does that rubs Pete the wrong way? Absolutely. But to push for a trade for a defensive <laughs> player when your defense was terrible the season before because Russ was getting all the love. <laughs> but go back to that Super Bowl, too. Wait, they wanted to give Russ all the love so they didn't hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. Make up your damn mind. We've gone full circle, haven't we? We've yes. gone full circle from the players and people around the team in 2015 who thought that this was a conspiracy to protect Russ and coddle the quarterback and he wasn't subjected to now to now the, the franchise is so determined so determined to sully the shine of Russell Wilson to make sure he doesn't stand out that they're going to make bad trades for good players. And I want to make it clear, I'm I'm not pointing a finger at Russell Wilson at all right now. I think Mark Rogers also is very good as an agent, clearly, because this is the stuff that's been coming out over the last couple of days, where there's essentially a sense of now that Russell Wilson is willing to take a restructure to help the Seahawks extend Dwayne Brown or Jamal Adams, which we heard yesterday, right? Wait, wait. He needs to be willing? He needs to agree to that? No, he doesn't. That's the funny part about it all, Danny. But we heard that put out there in that piece in the Seattle Times. Oh, Russell Wilson is willing to take a restructure. Guess what? They don't need to restructure him to extend Jamal Adams. The only reason that would be put out there is to put pressure on the Seahawks to extend both Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown. And I know the tinfoil hat right now in my head is 
perhaps rather pointy, or it's to make the Seahawks look bad for not giving an extension to those two and for taking their time. Colin Cowherd continued, perhaps through the advice of one Mark Rogers, saying that Pete Carroll is not pushing nearly as hard for Dwayne Brown as Jamal Adams. Why? Because of his ego being tied to his defense. Pete Carroll is not pushing nearly as hard for Dwayne Brown, Russell Wilson's left tackle, a much more important position than he is Jamal Adams, a safety. Why? Because Pete's ego is tied to his defense, and his defense in the last several years has not been very good, and Pete's been called out for running a defensive style. The league has moved past, and so he's fighting for this Jamal Adams contract to get done he's he's getting what he wants <laughs> we're playing this you know we're playing I, this and, and I would, we're reacting I would, to I, it i would honestly here i would like someone to play that for earl thomas i would like someone to play that for richard sherman i would like to someone to play that for michael bennett and all of the other players who feel that the seahawks have have moved past them or discarded them and to say that Pete try and tell them with a straight face that Pete is so fixated on his defense that he's willing to to err on that side of the ball when it comes to the decisions that have been made. That's hilarious. It's Danny and Gallant. That's Danny O'Neill. I'm Paul Gallant. Coming up next, speaking of this defense which Pete that Pete Carroll has so much ego attached to, Marquise Blair, second round pick at the Seahawks a couple of seasons ago. Possible nickel cornerback this year coming off of a torn ACL. He's going to join us next to talk about the way things are going for him in training camp. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We're going to be getting... Marquise Blair with us here in just a minute. And of all the players on this team, he, he is one of the most, the, I'm most excited to see. I, I've loved the way he's played going back to his time at Utah and the style of defense that he has. It was a bummer. I know more so for him than anybody else, but he got hurt last year and they had such high hopes for what he was going to bring to the team as that fifth defensive back. In some ways, he's kind of a wild card, Paul. We don't know exactly what he's going to bring to the defense. Right. And, Honestly, we don't know where he's going to be best used, where he's going to be used, period. It does seem like there is a pretty competitive situation unfolding between he and Ugo Amadi when it comes to that nickel spot. But they're such different players. When we had that conversation about what those guys might be, how they might play, yesterday with Michael Bumpus, it does feel like you could use both of them at that spot and move them around because I think they each bring totally different things to the table. He brings the boom too. And there's Mm. just no, there's no replacing that. The, the, the velocity that he plays at, how tough he is as a player, all of the other different, and you can never have too many of those guys. I mean, there is, it's weird. Did you see, do you watch any of the hall of fame speeches this weekend? I watched highlights of them after the fact. So Steve Atwater got in, which was awesome. Yeah. They didn't show his hit on Okoye, which I get that today's football is a little bit different. We'll get back to that in a second because we've got Marquise Blair with us. Our training camp coverage is brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Marquise, first of all, I want to say uh, welcome aboard and thanks so much for joining us this morning. Yes, good morning. I- I've got a confession to make I'm going to start out with because I'm-, I'm a Husky. I went to the University of yeah. Washington. 
But I was I was howling your senior year. I was howling. I was mad <laughs> for you when they tossed you out of yeah. that game for the hit on Gaskin. Because I, I, look, I'm as big a homer as they get in some sort. Of, but I was like, man, it's just playing football. Yeah, it was in was, the box. He squared him up. I, yeah, was I, hard, I was frustrated. Was yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Prob- probably you so more than me. How is how is training camp going for you this year? It's going well for me right now. Um, I feel good. I'm moving around good. So, yeah, it's going good. I could imagine that getting confidence back in the knee after a knee injury is something that takes some time. Where are you at on that front? Oh, yeah, I don't care. Um, it is what it is with me. I, I just keep moving. I, I know I put the work in, so I know I'll be good. I don't care. That sounds great. That is fantastic news for us to hear. Yes, sir. It's got to be... I mean, that's one of the challenges that professional athletes have is coming back from an injury. Has rehab been tough for you? Um, I mean, of course, it, it, it hurt, like, you know what I'm saying, doing the rehab. But, you know, I just kept going, getting through every day. And um, the, I had ACL in Utah. This one, it was ACL, MCL, and uh, both meniscus. So this knee was kind of different, yeah. Did having gone through at least part of this injury rehab before, did it help you this time around to know what to expect? Oh yeah, and then yeah, of course, and then just the time I had, I had so much time to just get it back. Like I had all day. Like when I was at Utah, I had to go to class, and then I go to rehab. You know. Now this year and last year, you were poised to be the team's fifth defensive back coming in nickel packages. This year, you're kind of competing for that spot with with Ugo Amadi. Yeah. What, what's that like? Are you friends with Ugo? Do you guys talk about that? Is something you just don't speak about between each other? Because defensive backs yeah. are all pretty tight. Listen, Ugo, we came in here together. That's why I talk to him literally every day, every morning. But we don't talk about that. We just know. I mean, it is, it's football at the end of the day, so we just know we compete, and it is what it is. Is the only animosity Duck Utes animosity? Oh, yeah. When we, when we get to playing each other, yeah, we always yeah talk a little trash. There we go. Well, one of the things I've been noticing when out at training camp, Marquise, is that there does seem to be a little attitude coming out of you, and I know there was a back and forth that you had with DK Metcalf, I love seeing it. I like seeing that defensive backs, when they see a wide receiver who, you know, DK Metcalf exceptionally confident in, in himself, but you right. got to be confident right back getting in his face and all those things that I've been seeing out there from you in camp. Yeah, I'm definitely confident in my game. Um, yeah, and I just, like, that's how I am at the end of the day. Why, what is it that DK does that gets under the skin of cornerbacks? Because last year I feel like there were three separate corners on different teams that wanted to fight him over the course of the year. DK, because he, he, he talks about it, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's good at what he do, and he knows that, so, yeah. <laughs> is he a difficult kind of re- – what's the toughest kind of receiver for you to match up against? Um, Locke. <laughs> yeah, because he's so small and so shifty? Yeah, Locke, is, he's, he's crafty with it. it he, can, he can get in your body and then break out. Yeah, he's crafty. Does his speed – I mean – I look at it and say he doesn't look like he should be as fast as it turns out he is. Does his speed ever catch you off guard? Um, I mean, you see it in this game. He he passed a lot of people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, yeah, there it is. Uh, he he run past a lot of people. So, yeah, he's definitely fast. Nickel corner is obviously a very different position from safety. In in your transition to playing that, what's been your favorite part of playing that position, which obviously provides an entirely different perspective than sitting back as yeah. safety and having that ability, seeing guys coming over to the middle to take them out. It's a little different when you're in that small little box and you got guys like Tyler Lockett up against you. Right. It's just that that match, matchup, one on one matchups. I, I like those. I, I don't I don't shy away from one on one matchups. So when it, when it, when it comes down to it, I can do it. 
We're talking to Marquise Blair here. Just a couple more questions for him. This is entering your third year in the league. What have you learned most in your first two years here with the Seahawks about either Pete Carroll and playing for him or just about professional football in general playing in the NFL? See, I, I didn't know not one person in the league before I got in the league. So I really, really? Yeah. So I didn't know what to expect. Like, you know what I'm saying? So I came here like just learning off the fly. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like what I have learned is just how to be a pro in, in a couple of years I've been here. So just, just coming in and work every day, um, getting your playbook every day and just, yeah. Since you've, film. since you've came in, are there any specific players that you've watched the film of and say, you know what, this guy's doing exactly what I want to do? Um, no, I don't. No, I, I worry about my game, and um, I just try to get better. What's your favorite part about being a pro football player? Um, just competing. Um, going against the best people every day. It's just, yeah, it's fun to me. You could wow. have a pick six or you could lay somebody out. Yeah, I was t- uh, somebody else asked me this. Um, I'll definitely take the hit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Old school. I think, we need that. I think, I think that's how we know that you You might play some corner, and you might be a nickel back, but you're a safety at heart. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a linebacker at heart. I, didn't, I, played, I played linebacker until I got to Utah. <laughs> there we go. Marquise, this has been really fun to talk to you. Yes, sir. We're really, we're really excited to watch you play this year. Best of luck, and thanks for taking Best it. Best of luck. Thank you. That is Marquise Blair. He's joining us from Seahawks training camp. That was great. He's not a, a linebacker at heart. at heart. He's a linebacker at heart. Uh, our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We got Brock here joining us next for Blue 42.